Good morning, and welcome to NSPS Radio Hour for another session today. Glad to have you with us. Our guest today is George Southern, who I've known for a while. I don't even remember how long at this point, George. Um, we've kind four or of five years, ten, I guess. Yeah, at least that. Yeah, we've sort of been tangentially associated, I guess. Yeah. With yeah. with my work here and your work in the industry for many many years. Um, Right. I, I suspect we probably are somewhere in the neighborhood of having somewhat equal time, although maybe, I don't know, you're not as old as I am, I don't think, but um, I began back in 19... Well, old enough that I've been doing this for 41 years, so well, that, that'll give you an idea. Well, we're pretty close. I'm exactly the same. I started in 1966, so I'm 51 uh, years, actually, so I'm, I'm 10 years ahead uh, of you. Yeah, you're 10 years ahead of me, yeah. But... Uh, it's it's been an interesting career, obviously for me, and I, I know it has been for you. And how how did you get involved? Did you set out to do this, or you're like some of the rest of us, and it just kind of came along? <laughs> well, you know, my story started back when I was a kid. Actually, um, when I was about ten years old. My mother gave me a a group. Actually, it was four boxes of shoe boxes full of stamps uh, all over the world postage stamps um, she had brothers who had served in the military and they had served in various parts of the world and and uh, friends around the country and so forth and she had gathered all these stamps and had never done anything with them and she said you know I can I'll buy you a, a, a stamp album and you can start cataloging and putting stamps and so I started getting interested in knowing where places were in the world and uh, through the stamp collecting uh, I was also the kid that sat in the back seat of the car with a map in my lap when we were on a road trip of any sort you know trying to figure out how long it was going to be until we got to the next place and so forth and so on so I kind of had a, a natural gift I guess for geospatial things and wanting to know things about the world and then I decided to go to the university and study geology um, because I like rocks, and I like being out in the uh, I grew up in the West. I grew up in the deserts of California, and loved being around mountains and rocks and things. And so I thought that would be a great study for me. Until I took my first um, organic chemistry class and decided, nope, that wasn't going to work for me. <laughs> and, and I thought I started thinking, well, what am I going to do? And at the same time, I had signed up to to go on a um, course during the summer uh, between uh, like uh, freshman year and, and uh, sophomore year in school and the course was to be a geologic mapping course and it was six week uh, summer camp in southern uh, Utah and I thought well this will be kind of fun I'll be out you know camping for six weeks and and uh, but I didn't have any idea just how fascinated I would become with maps and mapping and surveying um, I took a course uh, in preparation for that summer activity in, in surveying at the university from the, in the civil engineering department. After that experience, I decided to change my major uh, to geography. And my focus was 100% in the physical geography, not in the social geography. And, and our program uh, at the university had very little uh, of the uh, physical uh, geography, particularly mapping activities. There were a couple of courses in cartography, which I did. And, and then I went into the civil engineering department and took com some courses in surveying and photogrammetry and 
became interested, and then I stuck with that and ended up with a master's degree after serving a couple of years in the Army and a couple of years overseas doing some church missionary work. Um, finally decided to go to work, went to work, uh, started out as an aerial photographer, uh, doing photography for photogrammetry and surveying. That's how I got started. You you were talking about your mission work. We um, Some folks that, that still do that kind of thing, I've had couple of different sets of them on the radio show over time and and generally speaking of course they they go because they're surveyors and they get involved in uh, in doing work on on these mission trips as a matter of fact a guy who i grew up with uh graduated high school with me has done a number of those trips too and uh I, until I started talking to those guys, I don't. And, I, and this is coming from a guy whose dad was a minister, okay, in a missionary Baptist church. <laughs> but somehow it had never hit me that that connection of part of that mission work being in survey. Yeah, I wasn't involved as a young missionary doing that, but now that I'm retired, uh, mostly I still do work part time. But uh, my wife and I are actually in the process of planning. Uh, to serve a two-year mission together. Um, we don't know where in the world we'll end up yet. We'll be leaving probably the summer of, of 2019 is our current plan and getting things ready uh, for their home and their finances and things so that we can go do that for two years. But I could be involved, I, I suspect. There are opportunities to help and, and work in third-world countries that need help in their uh, basic uh, you know, geomatics uh, activities, whether that be surveying or mapping or photogrammetric activities, I could be involved in in, uh, in supporting some of that type of activity, but more likely it'll be more humanitarian uh, right. efforts, but uh, we'll wait and see. We're just anxious to, to go serve now that we've had all these years of, of taking from our society and, uh, and giving in terms of a profession, but now to be able to give in a more humanitarian way is, is very appealing to us. Yeah, I have a great friend in Georgia actually who does that same thing, and he he loves doing it. You know, they they go uh, regularly. I'm not sure how often, but I, I know they go pretty regularly. Uh, it, it's a great thing for people to be able to do and to have the opportunity to do. Um, yeah. So I, I applaud you on that. So that's that's right around the corner, basically, when you get to be. Day you and I are next summer is not very far away. <laughs> it's not. It's, you're right. That's why we decided to put it off. We were thinking of going this summer, but thought, well, we're not going to be ready. There's too many things yeah. we need to get in place. So we said, we'll wait a year, be patient, and then uh, and then go. And, and thankfully, our health is is good, and we've been in, and we're in a position where we can make a trip like that. And uh, you know, we have our our family that'll take care of the house and those things. So we're just getting things organized, but, yeah, we're anxious to do it. Now, are you associated with a particular group, or do you just find a group and sign up, or how, how does that work? Is... No, we're doing it through the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Okay. The Mormons. Right. We're part of that, uh, part of that uh, congregation here locally in Arizona. Um, our local uh, congregation, um, we have two... Uh, couples who have become very good friends of ours. One of them just returned from serving a, a two-year mission in the Philippines, and the other one's just left uh, to serve uh, in uh, eastern Canada. So uh, we're we're kind of watching what they've done and are doing and uh, getting ourselves ready so we can follow in their footsteps. You mentioned the Mormon Church. I don't know if you know Gary Kent. Uh, 
Gary is sort of our our expert on all things related to the ALTA and SPS land title survey standards. Um, and he and I have been working on them together for years. And, and we do reviews from time to time for groups who have a survey standard of some type to compare it to our standards or to provide maybe some surveyor input into it. Um, and, and the reason that came to my mind when you mentioned the church was several years ago, we had a request from the church to review their standard for people working on their sites. Um, oh, interesting. Which was very interesting. Yeah. We worked with people out in, uh, in Salt Lake, and mm-hmm. the thing that, that struck me about it was one of the things in their, their criteria for how to do your work was that there was to be no cursing on site. We yeah. are surveying, which uh, which is a really good idea, but I'd never seen it in a standard before. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was sort of the same standard when I went to school at Brigham Young University. You know, we yeah. keep our language uh, in order as well. Yeah, um, and we, now, we spend our, our honor code saying that we that was one of the things we would be conscious of. So, having uh, grown up in the in the backwoods. I'm not hearing you. I think we may have uh, lost Kurt momentarily. Uh, Kurt, I'm still hearing some background, but I don't hear you. Yeah, it's uh, the background that you're hearing is me and uh, it's the station, and I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure what happened to Kurt. Uh, he just Kurt, you're you're breaking up. I, I can't hear you just very, very faintly in the background. Okay, I, I think you were hearing me. Uh, this is David at the station, so uh, uh, we're going to take a break while we uh, get Kurt back. We'll be back right, All right after thanks. this. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes Yeah, that's fine. I don't know what happened. I just realized I wasn't lying. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. And I really have no idea what how much of what I was saying Field was missed books. because I was just talking and I realized the line was And there. the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated was, yeah. Bogside Publishing in I New Hampshire. You do a lot of For that. over 38 years, the family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
I am back, I hope. I'm not sure what happened to me there for the last minute or two, but either my my voice was not projecting or the phone died <laughs> one or the other. But I called back in, so, George, I apologize. I'm not really sure what happened there. But as I was going away, we were we were talking about your experiences and, and the fact that you had gone to Brigham Young. And, and the question I was asking when we left was about, as a kid, and even today, oftentimes I will see young people coming around associated with the Mormon Church and doing missionary work. And, and the question I was asking you was, is that part of um, part of the university program, or is that something people just volunteer for, or do you even know that? Yeah, it's not part of the university program, per se, um, but it is something you volunteer for, and you volunteer through your local congregation, uh, whatever city or town you're in, and, and uh, young men typically 18 years of age uh, and older are eligible if they choose to go, and young women can go as well, and we have quite a few now, uh, young women out serving. Um, they're doing primarily proselyting missions. Um, senior missionaries like my wife and I would be, be, be doing primarily humanitarian missions, um, not directly proselyting, but doing more leadership and humanitarian activities. Right. Well, I, I didn't mean to get sidetracked, so to speak, but... Uh, I'm one of those. I'm yeah. one of those people who believes that it's important for us to have um, uh, diversity in our lives, and and I think sometimes people think we in the surveying profession are stuck on doing that one thing, and we never even have another thought about anything. So <laughs> I thought it would be good to. Well, I kind to talk of about felt that like that for 40 years. You know, I was pretty much in, you know <laughs> deeply entrenched in my in my work and raising our family and earning money and. Uh, but it is nice to be able to step away from that um, at this stage of my life, and uh, and the and the surveying and mapping profession has given me that uh, that opportunity uh, because of the the great profession that it is, and the opportunity to earn a good living and, uh, and to serve well. And I've I've found that it's for me has been a uh, uh, part of the diversity of my life. Yep, I would agree with that. It's it's certainly a great profession to, to provide diversity for sure. Mm-hmm. So now you were talking about when getting getting out of college, and of course the, the sort of the path you followed. So did you go directly into working with one of the companies you worked with right out of college, or did you do something else first? Well, I got my bachelor's degree, and then um, it was during the Vietnam War, and I had uh, been drafted and and delayed my draft by joining the ROTC at the university. So as soon as I graduated, I owed the Army some time. Um, I went and spent two years uh, then in the Army in training in preparation to uh, to go to Vietnam. As it turned out, the war was near its end at that time, and, and I didn't end up serving in Vietnam, but I served two years in Fort Lee, Virginia, um, and uh, finished that two years service. Uh, the military didn't... Uh, wasn't interested in keeping young officers at that time. They had so many coming back from the from the war. So uh, I left with my GI Bill and went back to school um, and got a master's degree. Uh, when I finished my master's program, then I went to work uh, professionally. I see. Well, I, having spent those two years in Fort Lee, Virginia, uh, apparently had very little impact on your accent because you don't sound like we Virginians very much. But um, I guess you probably fought pretty hard not to acquire that accent <laughs> because some people find it to be uh, uh, not, not well, so good. But. You know, I, I wish I had to, I could turn it on and off when I wanted to. 
Uh, I, I've been teaching uh, quite a bit lately in, in some of the southern states at some of the survey uh, conferences. And I always have to say at the beginning, I apologize, I don't speak southern. So if I say something you don't understand, you know, just put your hand up. <laughs> they all laugh. Uh, but, uh, uh, but no, I never did pick up the accent. Um, I, I grew up in the West, and I speak like a Westerner. Yeah, and I think that oftentimes stays with us particularly. I, I guess it can change if you go someplace and stay there for the rest of your life, but um, mm-hmm. oftentimes when you move around, and I've done a bit of that myself, but I have not lost my southern accent, obviously. Um, so then when you when you got through that stretch with the Army, um, did you go directly then with um, one of the – I know you worked at like and, and Tremble over time. Did you go with mm-hmm. one of them right away, or did you do something else before? No, right after I got my master's degree, I decided to uh, take a job. I We had several children at the time. I needed to earn a living for the family, and uh, I accepted a job with a small um, aerial mapping company in Salt Lake City. Uh, it's no longer in business, but I started out as the aerial photographer and photo lab manager for that group. There were only about eight employees at the time. I was just a little group, but it gave me a chance to learn a wide variety of, of skills. Um, I was in the airplane doing aerial photography using uh, aerial cameras, the old-style aerial cameras. They didn't have GPS controls on them like they do today. Uh, I worked in the photo lab doing all types of photo processing, photo enlarging, photo rectifying. Um, I worked on several of the photogrammetric instruments uh, doing early orthophoto scans, um, doing some topographic work. So I got to learn kind of the variety of, of skills in, in that side of the business. But um, to my dismay, I found that I didn't um, handle the aerial photography well. Um, I got sick virtually every time I got in that small airplane, um, bouncing around on the thermals. And it just uh, the, the uh, motion sickness got worse and worse. Uh, medical people told me, well, if you'll take Dramamine or this or that, you know, it'll help. But if I did that, then I couldn't focus on the maps and the, and, the, and the camera and doing the work I was doing. So after three years of, of suffering uh, uh, in the airplane, I decided I needed to go back to school and get a little more education in the areas of, of business management, particularly in, in uh, business finance and, uh, and marketing. So I, I did some coursework in the evening, again, using my GI Bill, which was very helpful uh, to get some supplementary uh, in, uh, uh, education and then went into the more into the management and sales side of the business and, and stayed in that for the rest of my career. That's, that's interesting you mentioned the, the evening work because that's something that's a pretty big deal right now in, in the surveying profession as we're, and I'm, you've been around surveyors enough to know that, you know, we're pretty small numbers all over the country and we're mm-hmm. looking for the next generation and that kind of thing. And, and when you mentioned doing evening classes, I don't know if you actually had a place to go for the evening classes or like a lot of other people like me in the beginning had to do it remotely. Um, but, and of course, back in those days, it was just by mail, not not through the Internet or anything. Um, but it is it is good to be able to get that additional education and, um, and kind of round out things uh, that, Oftentimes, you don't get to participate in if you're doing the work, so to speak. Uh, and that's true, I think, in any any business that's related to our profession overall. Is sometimes you can kind of get stuck in that in that physical part of it or the calculation part, and 
never really get to grasp the business part. So that, you were very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, and I and I enjoyed it immensely. And as soon as I finished that program, um, and that uh, that company, that small company I was working for, was in the process of closing, uh, I I was offered a job with a company in Colorado Springs by the name of Analytical Surveys. Um, Mr. John Thorpe was the the president of the company and a very very astute uh, technician uh, and started a, a fine small company. So I went to work with him as his business manager. Um, I understood the background of the business well and, and also having, having the background in accounting and finance and areas that John needed help. It, it turned out to be a very good relationship. I worked with, uh, with those folks for seven years um, and uh, during that time uh, was recruited heavily um, by Leica Geosystems and eventually decided to accept a job with them, which was a major step forward in my career working for a large manufacturer. Now, Leica is, I know the company, I don't know a lot about its history. How old a company is it? Oh my, Leica, it was, Vilt Herbrug was the name of the company for many years. Right, I, um, yes, I remember Switzerland the and, and the Wild Instruments or Vilt Instruments were very well known. They yep. started um, in the 1920s, um, but uh, as they went through the years, they purchased Kern Instruments. Uh, Kern was also a Swiss manufacturer of surveying and mapping equipment. Um, and Kern had been in business since the 1880s, I believe, or 1890s, in quite a while. So uh, the, the, the history of that company is quite old. They've been around a long time. When I joined, um, it was part of uh, Leica. Uh, and then Leica, which, which was a family-owned business, uh, they sold off, they split the business into three parts. One part was for the binoculars and the handheld cameras. Uh, that became Leica Camera. They had a microscopy group that made microscopes and all the lenses and software and everything for microscopy. That was uh, sold off as the Leica Microscopy. And then I stayed on with Leica Geosystems. And Leica Geosystems had all the surveying and mapping equipment. Um, and uh, worked with them for 18 years. Wow. Well, if you worked for them for 18 years and thinking about timing of things and, and age, that was kind of during the, most of the, for lack of a better term, the revolution <laughs> in our in our <laughs> equipment, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. We went from, well, when I, when I was working with analytical surveys and just prior to going to uh, to Leica, we had just moved from the old analog instruments, which were just strictly uh, drafting, um, you know, hand drafting or, you know, a mechanical arm type drafting, but no electronics, into electronic instruments called analytical stereo plotters. And Leica was one of the firms in the world that led the, the, the move into those instruments. And then during my years at Leica, we went into fully digital systems called soft copy photogrammetry. Um, that was a huge revelation uh, and change in the business. We also added, of course, the GPS capabilities to, uh, uh, to the work and adopted a lot of GPS technologies in the uh, aerial photography and the photogrammetry. And then, of course, in the uh, late uh, 1990s, uh, got, like I got involved in the, uh, the LIDAR, uh, part of the business and using lasers 
and taken off as one of the leaders in that uh, part of the business as well. So, yeah, it was a huge advancement um, in uh, in our industry over those years. It's, we only have about a minute before our next break, but I, I'm always curious about those, those kinds of transitions. Um, and, and one of the reasons I think I am is that being sort of caught up in the surveying business itself pretty much all of my career, uh, both as a practitioner and now doing this job, um, it, we see the transitions coming, and we have to adapt to them. Uh, right. And sometimes, well, actually, maybe we don't see them coming, but but when they do occur, <laughs> sometimes we, they blindside us. <laughs> yeah, we do have to adapt, and so it, it always intrigues me when, particularly in something as sophisticated as the instrumentation that we work with, to to think about the vision it takes to grasp that and take. I won't say take advantage of it, but take root with it and, and move on with it and so that you're really developers more than anything else. Maybe we got to go to break, but maybe we can talk about that a little bit when we come back. Let's, let's go to our you break. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside Field Books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com. That's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for QuickStakes today. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. George, before we, we went to break, you were talking about your time at, at Leica Geosystems and, and even prefer, before it was Leica Geosystems, I suppose, but uh, or actually the, the company was something else. And, and at the end, we were talking a little bit about those transitions that have occurred seemingly so rapidly, certainly from my perspective as being in surveying since the mid-60s and what we were doing then. And I realized that was 50 years ago, but it still is a pretty short period of time compared to changes prior to then. Um, and so it, it's from, from the being in the field, running the business kind of person, as all these things were evolving, sometimes it was, I won't say it was overwhelming, but it was certainly something that, that we just kept looking at was, you know, how fast is this going to change again? <laughs> and so I, I, I just marvel at, in a sense at, at the thought process that goes through how do we develop the next big thing or how, what do we need to do or I, I, that just is, it, it's interesting to me how that thought process must work it's yeah there's a there's I saw both sides of it from the engineering development side 
uh, which is really exciting. When you get uh, you know engineers, particularly young engineers, with lots of ideas coming out of universities and and other parts of the world and so forth, and they and they come up with great ideas for a new type of instrument or a new adopting a new technology, um, they consider um, the the applicability of that. They just simply think, hey, this is one, this is cool stuff. I want to develop it. Um, and then it's up to the marketing people and the company to say, well, is this something that can be used? Is, it, is there a market for this technology? Is there a need for it? And we seldom ever get it 100% right uh, in timing, where a, a product is developed, it's ready for the market, and it goes to market right at the point when the market wants it and needs it. There seems to always be a gap. It either happens too early or too late. Um, and often it catches uh, the business owners off guard. They're the ones, I think, that really have to struggle with these new technologies because of the cost of the instruments. You look at the cost of aerial film cameras, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Leica cameras and the Zeiss cameras, the Gaina. Uh, those cameras typically were selling about half a million dollars apiece. And throughout the previous 50 years, if you bought a film camera, um, and then a newer camera came out, you could sell your old camera um, and typically sell it close to the price you paid for it 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier. It was incredible. They held their value. Well, all of a sudden, we started seeing this evolution away from film and film cameras to digital cameras in the early 2000s, and the whole paradigm shifted. All of a sudden, the film cameras were no longer of great value, and then companies couldn't sell them. They didn't have an asset there any longer. Um, that put a huge pressure on a lot of the smaller uh, aerial photo companies. Um, customers insisted on having digital imagery. Digital imagery was required to be used in the new digital uh, photogrammetry systems to do the mapping. So these transitions began to cause some serious disruption in the, uh, in the marketplace. And for some, it created a situation where they, they lost their businesses for very, in various ways. For others, it turned out to be a great opportunity uh, to advance and grow and to take advantage of these changes that were happening. But um, it's all part of business. But I, like I say, the, the struggle has always been, and I don't think we're unique in our profession, uh, the struggle has always been this, this change and the cost of change in terms of uh, valuations of the company, valuations of equipment, and so forth. So it's been pretty exciting, I have to say. There's been some ups and downs. There's been some tough times we've seen in, the, in both the manufacturing side as well as the uh, operator-owner side. Yeah, I guess you, it, it has an impact on um, you're looking at what actually not only upgrading what you're doing, but... Um, affecting what you what you sell, you know, is it a different type of thing? Mm-hmm. Or you, maybe it creates a whole different kind of clientele that you hadn't thought about until these yep. newer technologies came along. So I can see where that yep. would be yeah. an issue. Yeah, and that's so, certainly happening in our business right now. Yeah, it, it is for sure. And it's it's you were talking about how it put put pressure on the companies themselves and and could weed people out, and that certainly has been true uh, in the surveying profession. Uh, although I, I do have to say I don't, I'm not convinced that from the number of surveyors that are out there in the country doing work, either on their own or with with partners or working for firms or whatever, um, I'm not sure our numbers diminish a whole lot. They just they just never been big to start with. 
Um, well, yeah, I, I agree with you, Kurt. I don't think we've seen a, a, a fewer people working in our profession. I think there's actually more people working in our profession as these new technologies come along, but they have different skill sets. You know, today right. we need people that are very skilled in, in computer processing, computer activities. Um, and it, 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 at times it's been difficult for the, for the land surveyor to uh, companies to find people who want to go out in the field and, you know, with a, a, a machete in hand and a pole and a a reflector and, and work out in the field. It's, it's, a, it's tough work at times. Uh, but I, I, it certainly hasn't caused us to, to shrink in size in, to, in terms of total dollars that are spent in this area or in terms of the total number of people working in our, in our professions. I think it's actually increased quite dramatically. Right. And, and quite honestly, I think when we look at the educational aspect and, and the fact that even in our profession in surveying, the whole concept of how you get credentials to become a licensed surveyor, uh, it, it has been changing over years and continues to evolve, but it, can, it contains a, a higher level of education component to it where people get exposed to these new technologies that they probably might not have been exposed to had they just gone the, the old tried and true route of going to work for somebody and work for them until you kind of learn what you're doing. Uh, so I think it opens up a lot more opportunities for the young people coming in now to expand their businesses that includes surveying, but is not necessarily specifically surveying. Yes, yes, of course. But the, the foundational um, uh, tools of surveying, photogrammetry, um, you know, photography, these, these, these sciences, these basic sciences are still there and they're still part of what we do. It, we just don't have to do the, the mathematics on a calculator anymore. Uh, you don't have to know trigonometry, you know, as, as intimately uh, today to be a surveyor as you did, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, because um, that all the mathematics is being handled in the computer, and it's the same in the in the mapping side as well. Yeah, I kind of lament now, back in the 60s and 70s, carrying around with my whatever new transit I may have had at the time, or maybe even it was an electronic with a distance meter, but uh, carrying around my book of, of tables with me so I could do my calculation on my handheld calculator in the field. There you go. Uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a whole different world today, obviously. Um, that, and and I'm, not, I'm not saying that wasn't a, a good exercise because it was a great uh, learning tool. But yeah. we're just to the point now where um, people need to understand what's happening, and I think that's part of the fear among some of our surveying population. And you probably even see this. We'll talk about in a little bit. I want to talk about the workshops that you're doing now. I'm sure you must see this in some of those workshops. Sometimes there's a reluctance to to reach out and grab new technologies just because it's unfamiliar, um, and and perhaps because the way some of us learned, even through our college's experiences coming up. We didn't. We weren't prepared for what's here now. Yeah, I, I think that's very safe to say, and, and uh, I, it, it's difficult to um, uh, convince young people, or not. I won't say convince. Maybe it's not the right word, but to help them to understand that what they're learning in university today will not likely be skills that they'll be using ten years from now. But they have to have learned those skills in order to be ready for ten years from now. Correct, um, and it, it's uh, it's a bit daunting. Uh, and 
I, I think part of the fear, and particularly in the photogrammetry side of the business, is that now all photogrammetry is done in the black box, so to speak. You know, nobody has to do photogrammetric calculations of any sort anymore because the software takes care of all of that. Um, and it's, uh, but still, I think a good photogrammetrist today needs to understand the, the fundamentals, the, the foundational uh, mathematics, the foundational science behind all the things that are going on inside that computer in order to do the job well. Because there are times when things don't go exactly right, and you've got to understand what went wrong and now how, how best to fix it. Um, yeah, and that, that's actually a great point because I know that's certainly true in the serving profession as well where um, knowing when something isn't working right is really important. Yeah. And you have to have those that, that basic understanding and that basic background, that educational background, the experience background you're talking about to be able to recognize that because otherwise you push a button and whatever the answer is is whatever the answer is. Um, without understanding that it doesn't make sense perhaps right. I think that I think that's very very true so we we're three minutes out at the moment before break so I want to cover most of the next break on on your sessions one did one thing I did want to ask you just briefly and if you don't have an opinion about it that's fine mm-hmm. but you remember the light squared issue that came up a few years ago yeah uh, that's yeah. kind of come back now as, as uh, known right. as legato and we were just having discussions about it yesterday. We have a, a coalition of geospatial organizations. There are about 13 groups that are part of that in all sectors in, in our business. And we were talking about that in a meeting uh, on Friday uh, about what this next this next wave, so to speak, through Legato, how that's going to play out. And I, I don't know if you got very much involved in the whole light squared thing last time, but they're, they're similar but not exactly the same kind of concerns with this one. Yeah, Trimble was quite involved um, with the light squared issue. In fact, uh, the uh, uh, lead um, legal counsel for Trimble spoke at a MAPS conference regarding light squared and efforts that Trimble was involved in uh, in helping to uh, educate folks at the, at the congressional level and doing a lot of lobbying in Congress about uh, the effects of the light squared technology on GPS and so yeah I, I got peripherally involved and got to see what was going on when uh, uh, when the light squared thing fell apart and died we thought it would go away and now with Legato uh, reappearing I haven't seen much about their technology yet so I really can't comment on whether their technology today is the same as the light squared uh, proposal or if it has changed I, I really don't know yeah I think it has changed a, a, a bit but there's still the underlying concern about how it's going to affect or could affect what surveyors and photogrammetrists and our geospatial communities is trying is you know what our work is and what kind of impact it's going to have so obviously that's where the the concern comes um, yeah but you were talking about the the coalition that was Treble was actually a pretty big player in forming that coalition yes. I think they kind of managed the coalition actually back in those days exactly and, and one of the things that's a little uh, I don't know if it's unnerving is the right word for people in in our position is that we're it's not obvious that those bigger companies are out there being seeming as concerned about legato so we don't know if that means hey is it okay or does it mean it's just not going to affect what they are particularly doing but it could still affect what we're doing so that, I think that's where everybody is right now we just don't know enough to 
know whether yeah. how seriously we need to be concerned. So it'll be interesting to see how it goes. Um, yep. A lot of hearings going on now, a lot of back and forth, and so we'll we'll see how all that turns out. So when we come back, uh, I, I want to do focus our last segment particularly on the work you're doing now because it's very important to the surveying profession. So let's go to break, and we'll be back in just a couple minutes. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside field books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Back for our last segment today with George Southern again. Thank you, George, for being with me and and working through my 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 curiosities about a lot of different things. And of course, included in that is something that I wasn't aware that you were doing until just recently, actually. And and I guess it's fairly new for you too. But um, it, it's really important, and I'm glad you're doing it by by contributing to that educational base that we in the surveying profession need. Uh, and obviously, we need it to maintain licensure because all of our states have mm-hmm. continuing education requirements. And uh, so uh, I'm sure that you've had um, a lot of experiences and uh, a learning curve about figuring out how to work with the, the states and what their licensing laws require or don't require or allow or don't allow. Uh, so uh, I, I'm going to be interested in hearing about your, your uh, experience. Yeah, I, I kind of stumbled into this part of my current activities uh, when I uh, when I left uh, well after 18 years with Leica Trimble was recruiting me and recruited me to come to work for them um, I uh, I spent a year uh, working a full time as a full time employee with Trimble as a worldwide sales manager for their photogrammetry and airborne products group um, and uh, and then they made some changes within the Trimble organization and recommended that I move into a slightly different role, that of being a contract consultant to Trimble. 
Um, and so I started my own consulting business uh, primarily to service Trimble, but then um, had time to do other work as well. And being independent, I was allowed to do that. It wasn't a problem. So I started doing various types of consulting activities. And uh, then as my work with Trimble began to wind down a couple of years ago, and it, it took a year and a half or so to wind down to where my contract ended, I started uh, being asked uh, to speak uh, first at the uh, Maryland uh, Survey Society meeting and to talk about uh, an area that I've been involved in with Trimble for a number of years, and that was the uh, use of drones in the surveying and mapping business. And I had helped with a lot of the, the rulemaking processes, worked with the FAA extensively in uh, in helping to write uh, the operating rules and so forth for the use of drones um, and do it from a perspective of professionals. Uh, in our case, professionals being licensed surveyors, licensed engineers, photogrammetrists, all who had a business interest in using drones and as a tool in their business. So with that background, I was asked to speak at uh, one of these uh, uh, state survey organizations, knowing nothing really about them. I had not, not being a, a licensed surveyor, had not attended any of those meetings. So it was a bit of a new uh, twist for me. Uh, in the process, became interested in that and started talking to folks um, through NSPS uh, at first, talking to folks who were in that uh, area and uh, you know conducting these conferences, uh, looking for speakers for conferences uh, and technical sessions, uh, this continuing education, and then decided, okay, I'm going to take this serious. And so I've developed a curriculum of, of five different topics that I uh, offer uh, to speak uh, to any of the state survey associations um, as they have their uh, various sessions, whether it be a technical session or, a, or an annual conference or whatever. And I've now done, I guess, about 10, 10 different states that I've spoken uh, with and uh, had, a, had an excellent experience with it. So what are the topics? Um, three of them associated with the, the drones. Uh, one is a topic, uh, a two-hour session on looking at the FAA regulations, what are the rules for operating a drone in the national airspace uh, as a professional. Um, and there's some very specific uh, regulations, and those regulations continue to evolve and change, so that's, uh, that's not a static thing. The, the law is changing continuously and being upgraded. So I speak on that topic. I speak on a, another topic related to becoming a licensed um, or certified drone operator. I don't call them a pilot in this case, but a, a certified drone operator. There is a licensure requirement um, if you're going to fly uh, commercially or professionally. Um, and the process of getting uh, certified and passing the various exams, we, we spend a two-hour period talking about that process. I also have a four-hour session, which I teach uh, specifically on, on the use of drones as a tool for surveyors. And we talk about a little bit of the background of photogrammetry, a little bit about the, the, uh, the dynamics of flying a, a drone, which is flown very low altitude, you know, maximum 400 feet above the ground, and how that affects the kinds of, of uh, projects 
that can be done efficiently and effectively with drones and teach a little about the business side of the business as well as the technical side of the business in that four-hour session. Then I, uh, then I have a four-hour session on, on business law for survey companies. It seems a little odd. I'm not a lawyer, never have been. Uh, but having spent 40-plus years in the industry and, in, and running and operating businesses and uh, managing senior level at senior level manager roles, I've gotten involved with various legal activities, and so I thought it'd be helpful uh, to look at uh, legal matters from a business owner's or a senior manager's perspective. And so we do a four-hour session on that. And then the last is a two-hour session that I've developed on business ethics. I found that many of the state organizations, uh, licensure organizations, require uh, that surveyors have an ethics training periodically. So those are the five topics that I uh, that I offer at this point, and I've been uh, happy to uh, to teach uh, pretty much anywhere. Are you finding in your courses on the drones that a lot of the people are there? Um, with questions because they haven't gone into it yet and they're interested as much as people are already using them? Yeah, it's more the, the, the first group of people that haven't gotten into it. There are always some in my sessions who've already started using them, and they are, they're very helpful because they can add uh, perspective to what I'm talking about uh, from a, a, a user. Uh, so that's always been uh, uh, interesting. I, I, I go to these sessions and I teach, particularly on the uh, using drones as a tool for surveyors, um, al- almost every time I have people afterwards come up to me and say, gee, I am so glad I heard what you had to say because it's convinced me not to get into that part of the business. Oh, yeah, <laughs> well, that, but that's still a good thing. That at, least, at least they have yeah, some, something to base it on, right? Yeah. So I tell them, you know, I think I've succeeded then. I think I've succeeded if I've convinced you not to do it. But that we just, it's all tongue-in-cheek. I, I'm, those who want to get involved, there is the pathway to getting into the system, into the business using uh, that uh, that tool. And survey crews have been able to adapt and, do, and to uh, move into that business. But there's also a big risk. There's a lot of financial risk involved in, in getting into the business. There's a lot of technologies that have to be learned that are not normally uh, part of, uh, of the land surveyor's um, experience and background, um, and so there's a huge learning curve. There's a big financial um, commitment uh, to doing it and doing it right. But those who have an interest in it and find it uh, uh, that there's a useful part of their business, that there's customers who need uh, those particular, um, you know, the, the the advantages of using a drone. Sometimes there are advantages versus the manned aircraft sometimes there are not, but figuring out where the sweet spot is in the business, if their business wants it, will support that, then I, I encourage them to get in. But those who think that they ought to get in just because it's kind of a fun, sexy-looking piece of the, of the business, they're likely to lose a significant chunk of money and time. Um, right. You have to really look at it as saying, okay, well, I'm going to find a way to make this work. We have a need for it. Uh, and let's go. Let's go do it. And uh, we've I've seen at least a dozen different companies that have suffered uh, financially because they've they've simply made mistakes uh, that they probably should have avoided by not even 
starting to get into the business. They really weren't prepared. Right. Uh, well, this is this right. is very good though because it's it's important to have the perspectives that you bring, not only from the technical side but from the business side, re- related to this particular piece of work because. As you said, it's so easy to just think, well, I've got to do that because everybody else is doing it without thinking about, well, am I really prepared to do it or can I afford to do it or all those other considerations that go into it. So I can see why your 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 workshops would be popular with folks because, you know, it's like anything else. Uh, it's out there and you're interested, but you don't have time to do your research as well as you'd like and lots of different things. So I, I see this as very helpful to to folks in the profession. And the other aspect of it that I I focus on in my four-hour session is that uh, even if you choose not to be in the business and doing and operating and owning a drone and that, understanding the language, understanding what is happening gives you the knowledge to be able to go out and hire the right type of company to come in and do the work for you. Uh, Knowing that somebody has to be licensed to fly this, there are literally hundreds of thousands of people around the United States flying drones, doing uh, photography for advertising, for real estate, uh, wedding parties, whatever, were flying without being licensed, and that's illegal. Um, you know, it's, it's okay. You get away with it until there's a problem, but if there's a problem and you crash a drone and hurt somebody or break something, uh, then you're in serious trouble if you're not licensed. Well, the surveyor has to know that that's the case. You don't want to hire an unlicensed individual to do work for you. Uh, that would put your own license in jeopardy, uh, put your business in jeopardy from a, a legal point of view and also from insurance uh, standing. So there's a number of things that are important to understand about this new technology in our industry, whether you want to pursue it directly or indirectly. Yeah, and, and that actually leads into the business ethics side because yep. knowing what you need to know to make decisions is is part of, of ethics, really, and you know what Absolutely. you're going to offer to people. Yeah. So I can see how all that that blends together really, really, really well. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you're doing that, and I'm glad you're having fun doing it because um, going out and meeting with folks and getting to hear their stories and um, and. And I'm, I'm sure just feeling that appreciation from people because surveyors really want to learn and they want to do courses that are, are, are new to them. You know, so, so many times we, mm-hmm. we seem to run out of things to talk about and so we end up going to the same classes again over and over. But this is great to have something sort of fresh and new that, that's current technology but, you know, also a different learning experience. So I, I, I applaud you for doing that and thank you for, for reaching out to help the profession. No, I, I enjoy doing it. I love being around surveyors. It's a, it's a group of people that I so that I can feel comfortable with. You know, I, I like going into a place like in North Dakota and showing up wearing my jeans, and everybody's happy about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, believe it or not, we are uh, getting close to a minute out. So I want to make sure okay. that I uh, thank you for being with me today and and sharing the information. And and I know we talked earlier about getting getting some contacts for you and I'll do that so you can reach out further to our to our groups and offer what you what you're doing. Great. I'll follow up with you on that, Kurt. And thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to to be with you and your audience today. Well it's been great to have you because I you and I've been around each other a, a long, long time and 
uh, see each other in airports from time to time and, and at, at conferences, that, that type of thing. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah. this is really the first time I've had a chance to sit down and talk with you like this. And, and so it's been great for me, too, because um, I always I always want to know what folks are doing. And so it's been great to have you on the show today. We we really do appreciate it. And we'll continue to talk. Uh, we'll, we'll share more information. I appreciate that. Forth. So thanks again, and I, I hope we're doing the right thing minute-wise as we're going off the air here. I got off track a little bit, but uh, I think it's time for us to go. So thanks again for being with me, George, and we'll talk soon. Thank you, Kurt. Take care. Bye. Field books. There is a difference, and the difference is made in the USA by family-owned and operated Bogside Publishing in New Hampshire. For over 38 years, the family business has produced the finest, most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable field books in the land surveying and engineering industry. Demand the best from your supplier, Bogside Publishing Field Books. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. Bogside Publishing. For over 38 years, this family-owned New Hampshire business has manufactured the most durable, rain-resistant, and most affordable made-in-the-USA field books for the land surveying and engineering industry. And Bogside Publishing is still doing it today. Demand Bogside Field Books from your supplier or go to bogsidepublishing.com for a list of exclusive Bogside dealers. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Quick Stakes. Does your survey supply dealer have quick stakes? If not, demand that they start carrying quick stakes. Did you know that quick stakes are better for your back than your local chiropractor? Lightweight and easier to use than the old heavy wooden stake. Order a sample today and prove it to yourself. Quick stakes, your back friendly stake. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.